Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, Cato aficionados, newcomers. I'm George Selgin, director of Cato's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives, and I'd like to welcome you all today to today's uh, uh, policy forum, should the GAO audit the Federal Reserve. This is, of, of course, uh, a very important and timely topic. It's been the object of legislation recently introduced in both houses and a vigorous debate between proponents of greater government accountability on one hand and champions of an independent Federal Reserve on the other. But that debate has, for the most part, produced more heat than light. I'm confident that today's discussions will do just the opposite by addressing the debate's, the debate's central questions. Questions like, what could the proposed Fed audits possibly reveal that existing audits of the Fed and Fed testimony do not? And to what extent would such audits really pose a threat to the Fed's independence? To assist in our enlightenment, I'm pleased to be able to introduce today's moderator, Josh Sumbrin, a national economics correspondent for the Wall Street Journal, which he joined in 2014. Josh has covered the U.S. economy since 2008, having served previously as a Federal Reserve reporter for Bloomberg News, as a Washington correspondent for Forbes, and as a Metro and Style reporter for the Washington Post. Josh, Josh graduated from Georgetown University, where he studied international economics. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in extending a warm welcome to Josh Sumbrin. Thanks so much, everybody, for coming out. I'm going to start out introducing our panelists, and then we're going to jump right into it. Uh, David Walker served as the 7th Comptroller General of the United States, directing the Government Accountability Office from 1998 to 2008. If audit the Fed had, had passed back then, he would have been the person in charge of conducting the audit. He was the first president and CEO of the Peter G. Peterson Foundation and served as chairman of the United Nations Independent Audit Advisory Committee. He's a member of the National Academy of Public Administration, the Association of Government Accountants, and the Accounting Hall of Fame. Walker's a CPA and received his bachelor's degree in accounting from Jacksonville University, his senior management and government certificate in public policy from the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, and has honorary doctorates from Bryant College and the Lincoln Memorial University. David Wessel is the director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at the Brookings Institution. He joined Brookings in 2013 after 30 years on the staff of the Wall Street Journal, where he was economics editor and wrote the weekly Capital column. He's the author of two New York Times bestsellers, uh, one of which is called In Fed We Trust, which is uh, pretty relevant to today's discussion, and is shared in two Pulitzer Prizes. He's a contributing correspondent to the Wall Street Journal and appears frequently on NPR's Morning Edition. Uh, Wessel is a graduate of Haverford College and was a Knight Badgett Fellow in Business and Economics Journalism at Columbia University. And finally, Mark Calabria is the Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute. Before joining Cato in 2009, he spent six years as a member of the senior professional staff of the U.S. Senate Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. So he would have been on the Congress side of this debate, asking the GAO, how to, working with the GAO to figure out how to formulate a question for a Fed audit. Prior to his service on Capitol Hill, Calabria served as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Regulatory Affairs at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, and also held a variety of positions at Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies at the National Association of Home Builders and the National Association of Realtors. He holds a doctorate in economics from George Mason University. 
So we've got three really interesting perspectives on audit the Fed here. We have a, a perspective from, uh, from the GAO uh, who would conduct the audit. We have uh, David Wessel, who's, who's spent a long career reporting very deeply with the Fed, somebody who understands the thinking of the Fed uh, better than, than some of the governors probably do, and, and uh, Mark Calabria, who, who spent time on the Senate staff. So it's, it's a really great panel. We have all three of these perspectives represented. And so I'd like to start out by, uh, let's establish, first of all, what aspects of the Fed are already audited? And so when we talk about audit the Fed, what is it that we're, that we're really talking about? And, and David, we'll, we'll start with you. What's currently audited? What would the legislation change? Well, I think it's unfortunate uh, that the word audit has been used because it implies that somehow no one's looking over the Fed's shoulder to make sure they're counting the money correctly. And of course, the, they have an audit in the classic narrow accounting sense by an outside firm. And so there really isn't any question about the bookkeeping. Or if there is, it's because uh, the auditors didn't do their job, not because there is one. And the law, which has evolved over time, is very specific. The GAO can look into almost anything at the Fed, but it's forbidden by law from looking at deliberations, discussions, or actions on monetary policy, transactions made under the direction of the FOMC, and discussion or communication between the members of the board and the staff of the Fed on that thing. So the, the a whole argument here is about whether that exemption should be repealed and the GAO ought to have the ability to audit those monetary policy deliberations. Now, for... So, so we're going to call it, this is going to be Dave, and this is going to be David. That's how we're going to distinguish. <laughs> that sounds good to me. <laughs> so, so Dave, how um, unusual or not unusual is it for the GAO to do something? Does the, GA, the GAO doesn't just do financial audits, right? The oh. GAO also does review programs. How unusual would it be for the GAO if they had to go into this sort of situation with the Federal Reserve? Over 85% of what the GAO does has nothing to do with financial audits. I mean, it does audit the FDIC, it does audit the IRS, it does audit the Bureau of Public Debt, it does audit the Consolidated Financial Statements of the U.S. government from a financial standpoint. But a vast majority of what it does is, uh, is program evaluations, policy analyses, and a variety of other activities. And that's really what the issue is here. I think it's important to understand that the Federal Reserve also has an inspector general uh, within the Federal Reserve who's appointed by the board uh, of the Federal Reserve who does do some program evaluation work and twice a year reports to the Congress in semi-annual reports. But frankly, every other department and agency has something like that too, uh, and GAO does work uh, with regard to those departments and agencies, typically in situations where it's a lot more complex, potentially more controversial, where it involves a, a, a need for a broader range of skills and knowledge and perspectives, and where there is a perceived need for an additional degree of independence above and beyond the inspector general, who in most cases have dual reporting responsibility to the agency head and to the Congress of the United States. So, so, Mark, what is it that, uh, why, why has Congress wanted to get involved here? I mean, what, what is it about the current system that from, from the congressional perspective, and, you know, it's been, it's been primarily driven by congressional Republicans, at least this time around. We had a, maybe a different experience with Audit the Fed in the 90s. What is it that, that Congress feels is not working well here? So, it's certainly worth emphasizing, as, as you touched upon, there's a 
certainly wide range of views within Congress. Uh, in the past, um, you know, in the, in the far past, the audit was almost you know, unsupported with Ron Paul maybe by himself has grown to a point where he's bipartisan, and I think it's become a little more partisan again. And I think the real question from the perspective of Congress, because Congress does have lots of oversight opportunities, the Federal Chair, Reserve Chair comes up at least twice a year, governors come up pretty regularly, I can say as former staff on the Banking Committee, uh, at least we, you know, both in the majority minor minority, you had Fed staff usually willing to come up and talk to you a number of things. But what I think has really changed is we're in an environment where there's been a tremendous amount of unconventional monetary policy. The Fed itself calls this unconventional monetary policy. Uh, the role of the Federal Reserve in the crisis itself, I think, is hotly debated. So there are a number of things about pre-crisis actions, crisis actions. Um, you might remember uh, Bloomberg having to sue the Federal Reserve to try to get information out, uh, if you were there at the time. Um, and so I do think there's a really, I guess I put it as an economist, I'm struck by how much in, say, 2004, 2005, we all talked about the great moderation, all the problems have been solved. It really was a sort of, you know, business cycle's gone forever. You know, we're really at a point where, it, certainly in my adult lifetime, which granted shorter than many others, it's hard to remember a time where macroeconomics and monetary policy has been as hotly debated. Uh, and I will say as a former staffer from the committee who sat through a lot of those Humphrey Hawkins hearings, you know, it really was painful sometimes at the level of understanding of the Congress, you know, it was quite low, to be honest about it, and I, and that wasn't, that's across the aisle. Uh, and so I often look at what the great thing that GAO often did for us, whatever the topic, was to help educate members and staff. So, for instance, during my time there, I was the only PhD on either side of the committee staff. Uh, and most of the members certainly did not have degrees in economics. Most of the staff did not have degrees in economics. Uh, you know, for instance, one of the things we did regularly was have CRS send economists over to brief us before the Humphrey Hawkins hearings so that we could get up to the speed to engage. So to me, there are currently oversight opportunities. My concern, and I think some of the concern of those on the Hill, is that those opportunities are not being fully taken advantage of because members and staff on the Hill are not in a position, in my opinion, to even formulate the right questions to ask. So how do we get a more informed Congress out of this is, is really my objective. Now, some people kind of have a, a I think a different, the Fed certainly has a different perspective on, on what's motivating this. Well, I think, <clears throat> and it's interesting in what Mark said, because I think it's really important to ask, what is the purpose of doing these Fed audits? You said a number of things, Mark. One was you said Bloomberg had to sue the Fed to get information, which is true. And the Fed is a lot more transparent than it was when I came to Washington in 1987. And it has put up a fight every time the world's going to end if we ever tell you that we moved interest rates. So there's a disclosure issue, which is, I think, completely separate from whether the Fed is audited. In fact, one of the points that uh, the GAO has made and that the Congressional Research Service has made in discussing this issue is that a lot of times the GAO gets information and it can't disclose it. Yeah. So if you want more disclosure, have more disclosure. If you want a more educated Congress, I'm all for that. I'm all for better hearings. Uh, I think the chair's press conference is far more informative and is doing a better job of holding the Fed accountable on monetary policy than any Humphrey Hawkins hearing. But I have a little doubt about whether expanding, shrinking some exemption in the law about the GAO is going to lead us to a better Congress. If, if you could promise me that would happen, <laughs> I can, they can audit me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that the, the issue that's interesting and is hard to think about is this one. 
Why do we want independent monetary policy? This is so important to the society, to the well-being of Americans, indeed to people all over the world. Why in a democracy do we want to put this wall around the Federal Reserve? And the reason that we did it is that it was decided that in democracies, you end up with too much inflation if you let the politicians make monetary policy. They will have a temptation to set interest rates too low to get more growth now and more inflation later. And so the real question here is, if you do away with this exemption, are you somehow making it more difficult for the Fed to run an independent monetary policy to achieve the goals that Congress has set for it? And I think that the whole, the only interesting part of this argument is the people who are against the bill say it would make it more difficult for them to pursue the right monetary policy independent of political pressures. And the people who are for the audit the Fed bill, I think, fall into two categories. One set says, I think Mark would be in this camp, it's not going to force the Fed to do anything it doesn't want to do. It's just a question of holding them accountable. But a lot of the proponents of audit the Fed don't like what the Fed has done for the last five years. And so it's not surprising that defenders of the Fed say this is a Trojan horse. They want to use the GAO audits as a way to put pressure on the Fed to run a different policy. I, I can pick up on because I think yeah. Dave, Dave, David touches on what I do think is a very crucial issue here, the independence. And I'll certainly say as an aside, uh, as someone who served as a staff requester of, of many a GAO reports, I'm struggling to think of one time when I had a an, an agency audited where they actually did what I wanted them to do afterwards. So I'm not, I'm not unsympathetic to that point of view. But there's a question of independence from who? From who is part of the question as well. Uh, and so to me, I think the ability for Congress to be more engaged could potentially strengthen the ability of the Fed to be more independent from the executive branch. And if you go back and you look at the history of the Federal Reserve, for instance, for almost the first 20 years of the Federal Reserve, they met in the Treasury building. The Treasury Secretary sat on the Federal Reserve Board. Uh, Ian, so to me, part of the struggle, and of course, there's sort of two different literatures out there. One, there's this cross-country literature on, you know, this is how you style your monetary policy. This is kind of the inflation you get. There's also a literature out there called the political business cycle theory. Uh, and almost all of that focuses on the executive branch. So the very different range of preferences within Congress, you know, the sort of stereotypical example we think of in terms of compromising Fed independence is Nixon, you know, pulling Arthur Burns over and yelling at him, which we know happened because it's all on tape. Uh, and so, again, who are we trying to insulate it from? So for me, uh, I think there are a number of things we could do. Uh, I have questions about why exactly, and I'm not picking on yelling because this is a certainly pattern, but why does the Fed chair last year need to meet four times with the head of the National Economic Council? What is it? I mean, that's an explicitly political body. You know, Clinton set up the NEC because he didn't think the CEA was political enough. Uh, and so, again, who do we need to insulate this from? You know, what is the rationale, uh, you know, for this relationship with the Fed and Treasury in the same way? What's the rationale? You have a, you know, I think we need to do better in that regard. Uh, you know, Volcker has said in the past that he thought even meeting with the president compromised the Fed's independence. So there's a number of things we can do. Uh, I think we have to keep in mind that our founding fathers more or less tried to deal with conflicts of interest by setting up checks and balances. And so in my opinion, the Fed's independence has been compromised over the years, particularly from pressure from the executive branch. But I'll touch upon, um, you know, to me, the debate within the macroeconomic community really is one over, you know, has the errors that the Fed has made in the past, whether it's the 30s, whether it's the 70s, has that been the result of political pressure or has it been the result of simply the Fed had the wrong models?
of the economy. Uh, and I think it's a little bit of both. And I do think an audit is helpful to try to have that conversation about is the model of the economy that the Fed is using the right one? Because again, you know, there's questions about whether you're looking at it the right way, or is it simply political pressure? Now, if we believe it's simply political pressure that forces the Fed to make bad decisions, I, you know, I would agree that that's a concern. But if we also think there's a degree to which the Fed might simply be operating under the wrong model of the economy, which we never really know until after the fact, I do think we need to find a way to have greater debate about the decisions the Fed is making. Can I jump in here for yeah. a second? First, I think, from my perspective, the, the Fed's in four lines of business. Okay, they're in traditional recurring monetary policy. They're in bank regulation and oversight. They're in clearing transactions, and they're in the bailout business. All right, they're in the bailout business with regard to financial institutions, and frankly, to a certain extent, the U.S. government, uh, because it's bought trillions of dollars worth of U.S. debt, basically on an interest-free basis for the U.S. government, which I won't go there right now. All right, I, I think you know. The Fed has engaged in a number of extraordinary and unprecedented activities, uh, in part because of its mandate. It now has a dual mandate, which includes unemployment, and in part because, quite frankly, the Congress and the President, for a while, not just the current Congress, not just the current President, have been dysfunctional. And they've not been able to deal with a number of the challenges that are, that are, that are dragging our economic growth undercutting our competitive posture, and not providing enough employment opportunities. So in the face of an immediate crisis, obviously you expect the Fed to act, okay. But in the face of unacceptably high unemployment, underemployment, or whatever else, all right, and with no short-term inflation, they're still trying to do what they can, it, you know, and they're about played out, uh, to, to try to be able to do something about unemployment. And so my personal view is, is that there is a role for additional GAO program evaluation work with appropriate safeguards, uh, you know, with regard to when the work's done, it's post-audit, with regard to how it's reported, with regard to the amount of access that, you know, that Congress would have, all right, uh, in order to try to do more program evaluation. I can, I can assure you that GAO does work that's independent, that's nonpartisan, that's non-ideological, and that it tries to make sure that it reports in a constructive uh, and a fair and balanced manner. And for the record, we had fair and balanced before Fox News, okay? <laughs> uh, and and, and so, so the fact is, is that, you know, I think there is a need, all right? But I think the problem, quite frankly, is less the Fed than it is other parts of government. And I think one of the reasons that the Fed has been in the situation where it's had to do some extraordinary things is because the dual mandate, who did that? That was the Congress and the President. They're the ones that did that. So I think we do need some additional transparency and accountability with appropriate safeguards, especially with regard to the bailout business, uh, which is extraordinary, okay? Uh, but I'm sympathetic to the fact that, you know, the, the Fed needs to have a degree of independence. You don't want Congress you know, trying to set monetary policy. Hell, I mean, you know, they, can, they can't manage themselves. Okay. Well, so the, I, as I understand it, the GAO has pretty much authority to audit on the bailout stuff. The, uh, the emergency lending, the Congress has already said that. But look, I want to respond to what Mark said because it's important. First of all, <clears throat> it is certainly true that the Fed has from time to time been pressured by presidents. It doesn't seem to have happened in the last couple of presidencies, but there's no guarantee that it won't return. So it's important it's late. I personally am just as worried about the Congress meddling. We know that there were people in Congress 
who did not think the Fed did the right thing when it did quantitative easing, right? And some of those people are, are looking for ways to put the pressure on the Fed to, so they won't do that again. So I think that's where the, the rubber meets the road here, is do we want to have a system where Congress sets objectives and goals for the Fed, the dual mandate, maximum sustainable employment, stable prices, and then we tell them, you're free to do whatever policies you need to get us there. That's kind of the model. If we want to change that model, we should change the model. I don't think we should pretend that there's some in, that if we take this exemption out, that somehow everything's going to be wonderful. And I think sometimes the people who advocate audit the Fed are not all on the same page. I mean, after all, Ron Paul's book was called End the Fed. That wasn't exactly about accountability and audits. Audit. He, had a, he had a view, right? Um, and I don't quite know where Rand Paul is on this. He, he's not consistent. I mean, he's, he sometimes uses the language of the audit, like he said in a speech that uh, we know how much money they spend on coffee, but we don't know how much, what kind of bonds they hold. And I wrote a column in the journal saying, actually, it's the opposite. You know every one of the bonds they hold, and you have no idea what they spend on coffee. Um, although having had the coffee at the Federal Reserve, they're not definitely buying the high-grade stuff. <laughs> right, right. So I think the, the question is, if you want... So, so here's what I think is the problem. I think people don't feel the Fed is accountable. And I think the members of Congress, the thoughtful ones, a small minority, but a significant one, are troubled that it's so important and they don't have a good way, as Mark says, to get in. So I think that's, if that's your goal, then we ought to think about how to achieve that goal. I don't think repealing altogether this exemption, which would then leave the GAO free to do whatever it wants and would leave members of Congress free to ask for whatever it wants, including, you know, I want the audit of this decision, Friday's decision. I don't think that's a good idea. But I think if the goal is accountability, if the goal is making Congress better at, at, at oversight, then we ought to focus on that. I'm not convinced that all the proponents of the bill want that, but I think there are ways to do that. Actually, let me... Well, okay, jump in real quick. Real quickly. The GAO did get additional audit authority with regard to, quote-unquote, bailouts. Right. Okay. I would agree that it's not appropriate to totally repeal that section... Uh, there should be some parameters with right. regard to setting the scope of what the GAO can do. There should be some safeguards, which, by the way, there are safeguards with regard to the bailout provisions that ought to be put in there, okay? Uh, and, and so so I do think, you know, it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's uh, not quite as advertised, if you will, right. by some of these parties. Uh, and I think there is, you know, there is a concern about the degree of independence. I think there is a concern about confidence, all right? And then the, the Congress is sitting there saying, well... What can we do? Keep in mind this. When I was Comptroller General, I had to do a lot of tough things, all right? You know, I had to end up uh, suing the vice president because the vice president wouldn't end up providing information about the National Energy Policy Development Group. Did I want to do that? No, all right? Uh, on the other hand, uh, I had to end up testifying on what the true state of affairs were in Iraq uh, when you know, General Petraeus was also testifying. And one of the questions that I got back was, well, we just heard from General Petraeus. Why shouldn't we believe everything that he tells us, says, look, you should take everything he says seriously. You ought to seriously consider everything he says. But he's management, okay? I mean, if, if what you want to do is basically just take for, for, for ground truth what management says, no matter how good management is, all right, you don't need auditors. You don't need evaluators. And I can assure you that the congressional staff doesn't have enough people with enough 
background to be able to do what needs to be done. And in fairness, the Hill's very political. It's very political. I mean, if you're talking really, about- Really, is that a new development? Uh, no. <laughs> if you want something done that's nonpartisan, non-ideological, fact-based, you know, constructive, uh, then, you know, don't have the government in it to begin with. You're going to need the GAO to do it. So I think, one of, the big, I think one of the big questions here is, is the intentions. What are really the intentions of the, the act? Because we, we agree on what the act would do. It would allow a programmatic review to come in and, and look at monetary policy in a way it has. So the question, a, a big part of the question is over intentions. It's clear that some members of Congress, like Ron Paul, uh, kind of do see it as a Trojan horse, that they would like to audit the Fed as a step toward you know, building the political support or what have you to actually end the Fed. And then some members uh, are, are more interested in, in the transparency side. And Mark, so I was curious if you had a sense of, of how that breaks down. Is, do, do you see the support for it as primarily uh, driven by people who actually just want to end the Fed? Is it people who primarily just want to change the Fed's current policies but not necessarily upend the system? Or is it people who are, who are primarily interested in the transparency and, and, and good governance? And of course, they'll all say they're interested in good governance, but what's the real? So first, let me start with, and I, and I think this might be where I, the biggest disagreement here on this and that, I, mean, I quite frankly think we should judge public policy proposals on what we think they're going to do, not what the proponents say they're going to do, not the feelings of the proponents, not the intentions of the proponents. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I have no idea, for instance, I, despite that it says, you know, Dodd-Frank says to end bailouts, I'm going to take Mr. Dodd and Mr. Frank on their word. I, I don't think, for instance, that the bill does what they say it does. So I think too much of the conversation is about, well, these guys just want to end the Fed. I don't think an audit of the Fed's going to end the Fed. I think some of the proponents of it feel like a lot of things will get exposed. That's fine. And maybe we'll find nothing. Uh, you know, for, I'll say, for instance, you know, the Congressional Research Service did a paper on unconventional monetary policy on QE. It was interesting. If you're a monetary economist, if you're anybody else, it was probably pretty boring. There was nothing salacious in there that made it. It was relatively balanced. And that's the point I would make is that whatever the proponents want, I mean, I saw numerous times as a committee staffer, members asked for reports from GAO thinking they're going to get A and they got B. And as David, Dave has mentioned, their process really is driven by GAO. I mean, once you hand over that request, it doesn't matter what you think you're going to get out of it. The process drives what comes out of it. And so, yeah, there is certainly, and I'll, and I'll notice, I mean, Bernie Sanders recently came out and said he was in favor, can still in favor of the audit. I don't think Bernie thinks that we've somehow, you know, cured unemployment uh, and that somehow, you know, I don't, I don't think he prioritized. I put it this way. I think in his Phillips curve contraction, he's probably got a much lower weight on inflation than I do. Um, and so, again, a lot of different perspectives on why you would have it. Certainly some people feel like you'll expose all sorts of misdeeds. You know, if they're there, they'll be exposed. Quite frankly, I don't think there's a lot there to expose. Um, oh, but wait a minute. I, I'm trying to figure out what you're talking about here. Sure. So, yeah, one, if you, if, is there anything to stop the GAO from doing a, an essay on the pros and cons of unconventional monetary policy? An essay? Yeah, I mean, you don't need to audit the Fed to have, I can have a great argument at Brookings with a lot of smart people about the pros and cons of, of is, if, if, if oh, what Congress wants is a plain English summary of what the Fed did, why it did it, what were the pros and what were the cons, that's oh, not... But I understand this. I mean, what, what, what is being talked about here, I think, okay, is does additional authority need to be had with appropriate limitations on scope, with appropriate safeguards, in order to be able for the, an independent body like the GAO 
to do an evidence-based study, which would then be provided to the Congress for its consideration. Now, right. I but, can do a white paper, they can do a white what, paper. What, but, evidence, but what, what evidence are we going to get from an audit that you don't have? I mean, there are academics by the scores looking at the Fed did this, the bond market did that, did we end up with too much money in the system? So I don't understand. Do you want someone to explain to Congress the pros and cons of this very unconventional monetary policy? Or, but then you say it's going to expose misdeeds. So if they, what, what are you talking about? Like they went, they didn't buy the bonds? So Josh asked me what I thought that some of the proponents. I understand. Yeah, I want to know what you think. So Why do you think this is a good idea? So A, I think this is a good idea for several reasons. One of which is the first one, which is to explain to Congress, this is how monetary policy works. This is what the literature says. So right. This is what would suggest. And you think the law would need to be changed for GM I think to the do law that? would be need to change to that if they went to go in and actually look at the functioning. So, for instance, how does the desk at New York work? How does the primary dealer system work? For them to be able to get feedback yeah, okay. from the agency, you know, because again, if you're okay. going to do a general okay. audit or anything, it. so that's A. And I would now, agree with it. I agree with that. So that's one. So B would simply be, for instance, you know, are there, are there any pressure from the executive branch? What, you know, what would be the interviews? You know, if you're going to go have GEO, so part of it would be not simply GEO does an essay, but GEO goes in, talks to the staff at the Fed, talks to the staff in the regionals, and says, you know, how does this process work? Do you feel like you're actually getting what you want out of the process? Uh, I would say as a general question, you know, I, I don't think the question should be, okay, well, what do you think an audit is going to find? I don't know. If I knew what an audit was going to find, I, I wouldn't need one. Would no, I? But you have, to, you have to know what the purpose is. It's a very different question, the economics of unconventional monetary policy, and are they somehow buying Russian bonds and hiding them in the vault of the New York Fed and not telling anybody. So, for instance, you could have the you could have the GAO go in and say, okay, we do know, for instance, as you've mentioned, that the holdings are, are public. Uh, what's the interest rate risk in the in the mortgage-backed securities that are being held? You know, what do we think the duration is going to be? I mean, so much of the almost the vast majority of evaluations of unconventional monetary policy have basically been done by the Fed. And the reality is, no, that's not true. That, I think that is true, when most of the association of economists have some association with the Fed. So to me, I think having the GO be an independent evaluator of this, uh, again, I have no they, idea. They also don't use generally accepted accounting principles that yes. apply to the private sector of the federal government. The biggest differences are uh, that with regard to investments, uh, that they basically are, are costs and they amortize rather than go into fair market value. So there are, there are differences, okay? And that kind of situation, presumably, the financial statement auditors would catch if it was material. And they do okay. disclose the mark-to-market yeah, value. that's right. No, no, All right, I'm let sure. me ask, can I, can I ask? Prohibited from auditing. Let me, here's, I want to read you what Bernanke says, and I want, you know, if you're worried about it, and then I want to give you an alternative and see if you'd buy the alternative. So Bernanke testified 2012 the nightmare scenario I have is one in which some future Fed chairman would decide and say to raise the federal funds rate by 25 basis points, and someone in this room, meaning Congress, would say, I don't like that decision. I want the GAO in to go in, get all of the records, get all of the transcripts, get all of the prep materials, give us an independent opinion whether or not that was the right decision. And I think, Bernanke says, that would have a chilling effect and would prevent the Fed from operating on the apolitical independent basis that is so important that experience shows is likely to lead to a low inflation, healthy economy. It looks Before like, you it go looks further, like, yeah. let me just tell you, the GAO would never do that. Yeah. I mean, the GAO will go in, it will do an independent evaluation, it will report what it finds. There's no way the GAO would ever come out and say this was a wrong decision. Yeah. I ain't going to do that. I mean, I mean, that's not how it works, okay? 
Another concern is that it would be high frequency. In your experience, did the GAO do a lot of high frequency reporting? No, first you have to understand that 85 to 90 percent of the work that's done by the GAO was at the request of Congress. By law, it has to do work at the request of committees. By policy, it treats the minority the same as the majority, so it's nonpartisan. It treats the leadership as with committee status. Uh, somebody can ask it to do the work. First, it's got to say, is it within our scope of authority? Is it within our level of competence? All right? If the answer is yes, then it gets determined on what the pecking order is, what priority. You know, it's oversubscribed. It's got a lot more requests uh, than, than it's got time. Uh, but then once it accepts the engagement and once it puts it in the queue, it does it in accordance with its core values. It does it in accordance with its protocols, uh, which I would respectfully suggest you know, ensures that you're getting what I said. You're getting but so nothing to stop the chairman of the banking committee or the speaker of the house from asking for an audit after every FOMC meeting. There's nothing that would stop. Uh, th- 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 there's no way the GAO would agree to do that. It's a capacity problem. I mean, it's not. You know, I mean, it's not. But that Congress sets your budget, right? So Congress could appropriate a lot more yeah. money. I mean, so yeah. it's not. It's not the first right. time. An- so another, not the first time concern, that we've said an- no. Another concern that comes yeah. up from it is that the, yeah. it would be it would be a way to extract information that could be that it could be sensitive. It could be market moving. It could. Uh, That's a part could, of the safeguards. You're doing post audit work, okay? You're doing it probably looking at a period of time, okay? You're doing it not providing disclosure as to who said what to whom, all right? I mean, keep in mind right now there are already some of those. Dis- some of those restrictions that the Fed imposes on itself, okay? The Fed, for example, does do a summary after every FOMC meeting. That needs to be acknowledged. The, the Fed chair does testify twice a year about monetary policy, answers other questions. And the Fed itself publishes full transcripts of all FOMC meetings, including who said what to whom, five years afterwards, okay? Now, the, the real question is, is there a, a need or an opportunity to do something between those two periods of time in a way that, has a, that is appropriately bounded and includes appropriate safeguards that can help provide you know, more constructive oversight, that can help inform the semi-annual you know, presentations you know, more uh, by, by the Fed chair, that can help, frankly, improve, con- enhance confidence in the Fed, uh, and I would argue maybe actually try to get the Congress and the President start acting on some of the issues that they need to start acting on rather than blaming the Fed. But I think GAO is generally, they're a little reluctant to write reports that say nothing at all, right? So there's, there's always... I've read several that. There, there's always going to be... There's always going to be something in there where there, there's going... I think most reports have a finding that a member of Congress could certainly latch on to, right? I mean, if the GAO audited monetary policy, they're not going to write a report that says everything was perfect. Uh, that so, doesn't exist in the real world. Yeah, on, any, right. on any program. Right. So, so is the Fed's concern justified that you come back with a report and it says, you know, here are these three or four flaws, and then Congress says, all right, well, we have, you know, Janet Yellen, you have to stop doing this. You're, well, the you're real, making okay, mistakes. Well, and, that exists everywhere in government, okay? There's no department or agency in government that that situation doesn't exist. The question is, is there some way in which it's going to be abused here, Okay. I mean, you know, that exists in the Department of Defense. That exists in the Department of Homeland Security. That exists everywhere. 
Yeah. I mean, it's in a lot of sensitive places, okay? And to illustrate that point, by my count, there were almost a thousand GAO products of some port on U.S. involvement in Iraq. Do we suspect that some of those were probably politically motivated when they were requested? Quite certainly. Right. So the question basically but, is, but is monetary policy special enough to get special that insulation? Is, that is the and question. And you think not? No more than dropping bombs on people. I, I, I think there should be additional restrictions, and I've said that before, and I think that there ought to be appropriate safeguards, all right? Do I think there should be an absolute prohibition? No. Right. Let so me, that's right. part of the problem here. So you say the law says nothing about frequent audits, and Dave Walker says, well, the GAO can't do frequent audits, but frankly, the law just says we'll take out this exemption. So here's Vince Reinhardt who was a staffer at the Fed, who was not always supportive of what they've done since, his idea is, okay, Mark, you're worried about the fact that members of Congress look like idiots when the, when the chair of the Fed testifies. And he proposes that the GAO be allowed to do a report to Congress, to have access to the Fed uh, staff and the chairman and all that, so that two weeks before the semi-annual hearing, they get the GAO report said these are the issues and these are the controversies and stuff like that. But it would, the law would say it's a twice-a-year thing. Oh, I understand. Right? There are other situations think that's a good idea? Like I think that's a great step in the right direction. Not, not far enough. So for the reason that I say I don't think it's far enough is because they're one of events. So, for instance, I would read the current law as prohibiting Congress from asking how in the world did MF Global become a primary dealer? I'd like to know that. I'd like to know what that process is, because in the New York Fed site, it says that they review all these guys, and they're all the safest and soundest of the group. Lehman, Bayer, I mean, how many primary dealers have gone down? What I think, is the process? I think, I think you're exposing a different problem, which the GAO can't fix, is that it's not clear to me that the GAO is going to be able to go into the New York Fed anyways. And they might not find anything. You, and that is an issue. You raise right. a very the important issue. The governance of the... That's a different issue. That's so, a yeah, big one. So I do think that Reinhardt's proposal is a great, great step in the right direction. If that was the compromise that came out of Congress, I'd certainly applaud it. But I do think that there are one-off events that don't fit in the regular cycle that we need to look at. I also say there are other ways for chairmen. I mean, I very much remember when I was there and it was made very clear to a certain Randy Krosner that if he wanted to get reimported, the Fed would change its views on consumer regulation. And the Fed did change its views on consumer regulation, which brings out a broader issue. And, you know, uh, Barry Eichengreen, certainly no, no rabid free marketer, has a paper saying that central banks that do financial regulation also have higher levels and more variable levels of inflation. If we are ultimately concerned about the independence of monetary policy, one of the first things we should do is get the Fed out of bank regulation. They trade that off all the time. Yeah, so there's a lot of bigger That's questions huge. about the structure of the Fed and... and and that sort of thing. We're, we're, we're coming up on our question and answer period with the audience pretty shortly here, but one of the things I wanted to cover before we move to that was the, the actual prospects of the bill right now. Uh, do we think this, well, it's passed the House several times. It's pretty clear it could, it could pass the House if it was put up for vote today. I don't think anybody would dispute that. Um, and it certainly has better prospects in the Senate than it did last year. Is, is there a real pat chance, Mark, do you think that this thing would pass? So let me start with the easy. It's lower chance than it was last year. Um, I still think there's some issues in the, in the banking committee. You, you know, Corker has, uh, has signals his opposition to it. Uh, we've had a couple of members like Warren and Brown on the Democrat side who have signaled their opposition. So while I actually think we're, it's probably pretty close to 60 votes, it's not clear to me at this point that it has a majority within the committee of the banking <coughs> committee. That said, you could certainly have Shelby do a Fed reform bill, which is what they're looking at right now, 
doesn't include an audit. You do an amendment on the floor, and if there are 60 votes, or if they even do a 51-vote threshold. So I guess my point is, it's not clear to me there's a majority in the committee, but it's also not clear to me that that's going to be an obstacle in the long run. Would the president just veto it? I think it would depend on what the package looks like, because again, it's unlikely, in my opinion, that you're going to see an audit go as a standalone bill. So for instance, Elizabeth Warren has pushed reforms to Fed's 13-3 power. So what this is going to look like is going to be a package. Shelby's going to sit down with Sherrod Brown. He's going to sit down with Elizabeth Warren and say, okay, here's some things you don't like. Here's some things you do like. How do we put together a package that everybody can kind of equally hate but live with? The, the real question is, is there going to be an effort to achieve a constructive compromise that is different than what the bill proposes, all right, uh, that would be a step forward? Uh, uh, and, and that's the real question to me, because is it likely to pass in its present form? No. Is it likely to pass standalone? No. But is there a desire to potentially do something, and is there a way to come and re reach a reasoned and reasonable compromise? I think, yeah, there is a good chance of that. Uh, and then I think we have to say, okay, let's then look at some of the bigger issues that we've touched on here, all right, uh, about, uh, you know, should the, should the Fed be in you know, in the bank regulation oversight business, you know, down the road, should it continue to have a dual mandate? That's down the road. And by the way, let's remember that, you know, the feds had to jump in in certain situations because the Congress and the president haven't been able to work together to deal with other issues that are very important for economic growth, that are very important for employment opportunities that, frankly, the Fed can't do anything about. Absolutely. David, how worried is the, the Fed that this legislation is going to compromise what they do? Or, and how much of their worry is about whether or not it's opening the door for something that's, that's even worse? That, that, that their main, is, is their main, how much of their concern is kind of that this is the start of a very slippery, very dangerous slope? Well, I, I'm no mind reader. I think that, um, I think that the Fed is a, has taken a position that they're basically against everything <laughs> because they're afraid that if any bill comes to the floor, there'll be stuff in there they don't like. Um, uh, uh, Jay Powell, who gave this speech, a manifesto against audit the Fed, did say at the bottom that he was willing to work with them on accountability. So I think if uh, there was some spirit of compromise, and this is really about accountability, I suspect the Fed would be in a position where it would be hard to fight back. I think the Fed's political calculation is the chances of that happening are so slim that they're just going to stone, stonewall things. My own judgment is that um, the audit the Fed thing is losing a little bit of steam. The fact that Elizabeth Warren and Sherrod Brown and Cork, Senator Corker are not for it suggests, but that the governance of the Fed and the role of the, the district Fed banks and how their presidents are, that's gotten a little bit more momentum. I'd say the chances of any bill passing are very low, but if I had to pick one that had a slightly higher chance, it would be something about governance rather than audit. Well, and what about the, the, the chilling effect? Argument. I mean, do you, is it possible that this is already having a chilling effect on the central bank? One of the things that governors from the 90s talk about is that they didn't know that there were... They, they, the, the Fed governors didn't initially know that the transcripts were, were being made, I believe, right? And when they found that out, they suddenly felt... They say they felt much less comfortable talking about policy in, in meetings. And, and <clears throat> even though the transcripts weren't going to come out for another five years, they, they, they feel like they really changed the way they discuss and talk about monetary policy. Is there a risk that having this out there has made them more circumspect in their communications and that they're not, you know, communicating with each other? This is one of the arguments that the, the Fed makes about I, why it would be a bad idea. Is it would have I, a chilling effect on their I think, discussions. I think, 
I think there are two different things. I mean, as, as reporters or former reporters, we take the chilling effect argument seriously. So uh, it, it is such an unusual situation. It's, uh, Mark mentioned this. So always in the past, it was the president pushing the Fed to keep rates low or lower than they wanted. And what's unusual about this one is that to the extent that there's criticism of the Fed, it's coming from Congress, mainly from Republicans, saying the Fed should raise rates sooner. So it's kind of like, well, that's so unusual, it's hard to know how they're, because it's kind of a, a one-off. Um, I don't take too seriously this business about if we have to tell you what we're doing, we won't be able to do it well. I mean, that, that's kind of offensive to me in a democracy. Um, and I think that uh, they've demonstrated a certain amount of willingness. You've got to take some bullets if you're going to be uh, a, a central banker, and central bankers all over the world are used to being criticized. I think the fact that the Fed people at the Fed have difficulty talking to each other has largely to do with the sunshine law that prevents three governors from sitting in a room and talking about anything, which does seem to me a bit bizarre. I'm not sure that, I, that I would require that every conversation be noticed or transcribed. Um, but I think that they're thinking down the road, and they're thinking, we think we've achieved a great deal of independence, so much independence that we could interpret our mandate to buy $3 trillion worth of bonds. And they would like to preserve that power for future Fed chairs. And they're worried that every, these things are just a step towards constraining their, their independence to pursue their monetary policy yeah. goals. So I don't think it's a chilling effect now. I don't think Janet Yellen's going to raise rates three months earlier because uh, uh, Rand Paul made a speech. But I do think that they're worried down the road that this is a step towards more political control of monetary policy that they are reluctant to surrender. And with regard to the safeguards, one illustrative safeguard would be is if the GAO was going to do work here, I don't believe that it should report who said what to whom. I don't think that's relevant. And there are ways, there was a handle, but I, yeah. I do want to echo something David said, which is, you know, it wasn't that long ago when we were all talking about June, you know, it was maybe the first move, and now they could see there's a June, or is it more likely September or even next year? So my point being is, despite, you know, this sort of chorus of uh, the Fed needs to normalize, it's hard to see that having any impact on the actual timing of what the Fed plans to do. They certainly don't seem like, to me, it's just... And I think that's a good months. thing, that they're not taking their yeah. cues from the uh, politicians. Do you agree, right? I think it's a well. Set aside my policy preferences on where that, the Fed the question should, isn't should what, be. The question is, you know, should they be ignoring short-term interest of politicians? Let's I, actually I agree with that. let's actually yes. turn things over to the audience for a little bit to uh, get some get some questions from the audience and bring them into discussion. So we're going to just ask three things here. The first is please wait for the microphone before asking your question. There's people on both sides walking around with microphones. I think. Uh, second is please identify yourself. It's it's not nearly as fun when everybody's anonymous. Um, and, the, and the third thing is that one of the things that makes it, one of the things I've learned as a journalist is that the most effective questions are probably two to three sentences. <laughs> if you have a really, really long question, you end up saying something that's kind of irrelevant that the person can latch onto and then avoid the substance of your question. Don't ask a bad question. Two to three sentences, you will get much better answers if you do it, I promise. Uh, let's start with the gentleman right here. outside that uh, relate uh, to the audit of the Fed bill. And that is not that uh, a, a GAO uh, would go crazy and necessarily recommend the abolition of the Fed, 
but might get to a much more central question, which you all have touched on here, and that is, should the Federal Reserve engage in the policy of manipulating interest rates, which essentially is what monetary uh, policy is, or looking backwards saying, uh, you know, the economy might have functioned uh, better in X number of years if the Federal Reserve had just stood on the sidelines and let the markets determine interest rates at all points along the yield curve rather than trying to manipulate interest rates uh, as it has done, especially in recent years. That's terrific. <laughs> Everyone should ask a question of that length. What, so what, what, what do you think of oh, that? When the GAO gets that question, yeah, what would the GAO, well, GAO going to be able to answer it? Well, first, the GAO would never recommend <laughs> to terminate the Fed. They would avoid that like a plague. No, no. That he, Bert wants you to say whether it's a good idea that we have a Fed. No, no, no. No, no, no. no. Is it a good idea for the Fed to engage in interest rate manipulation? In other words, you can still have a Federal Reserve, but it doesn't necessarily have to engage in interest rate manipulation. So do you think that's a question the GAO would want to tackle? If the GAO tackled that question, it would do it by gaining the facts uh, and being able to uh, conduct an independent, nonpartisan, non-ideological analysis of the relative pros and cons. All right? Here's what happened. Here's why. Here's the potential implications. But it would not come down and say, not appropriate. Dave, how much would that analysis be influenced by kind of what the prevailing opinion is among uh, sort of... It, no. It, I, look, when I was there, uh, you know, and I have no reason to believe it's any different now, you know, you call it like you see it, you tell it like it is. I will tell you that GAO is, has been, and it, you know, uh, historically it's been a somewhat risk-averse institution, all right? Government is a somewhat risk-averse institution. Uh, we ended up taking on more risk when I was there because my theory is uh, no risk, no return. If all you're trying to do is minimize your risk, you're not going to get a return. I mean, you'll get innovation without change, all right? Uh, but, but, but there are bounds to what it will and won't do. And take, for example, a, a less controversial issue, issue I would argue. Uh, duplicative programs, redundancies overlap in the federal government. The GAO has issued four or five reports within the last three or four years, laying out a tremendous number of duplication overlap redundancies. In some cases, they'll say, you ought to think about this, but they don't make specific actionable recommendations that say, kill this, consolidate this, cut this. They don't. Now, you can debate whether they should. Uh, and I would respectfully suggest if they're not going to do it, we need a mechanism to get that done. That's why I'm chairman of the Government Transformation Initiative. But but uh, I, I mean, I really do want to emphasize this, both someone who's requested and read more than his share of GAO reports. I mean, they often are, you know, this is what the, the centralist sort of literature says on the topic in question. Now, quite frankly, I think that's a valuable contribution on any topic. And I'll give the example of, and it could be just the particularities of the time and place I went to grad school, but certainly when I was in grad school, the, the thought that there was, you know, any sort of exploitable trade-off between unemployment and inflation was laughed at. And that's what the, but, you know, if you go to Capitol Hill, pretty much Republican, Democrat, there's all this sort of assumption that somehow you can inflate your way to, empl to employment. So I do think on a number of issues, the distance where the profession is, and I'm certainly willing to say that I think the profession has come back in some quarters and saying there is this exploitable, you know, trade-off years after you've actually, you know, gone on down that path. But to me, I see time and time again on a number of topics where 
Congress, if they're not 30, 40 years behind where the literature is on any one topic, you're lucky. But let's not jump into the, the slopes on the Phillips curve. It's a, it's a great question. It's a different conference. Let's, uh, let's right here. Hi, my name is Hermes Leviev. I'm from the Occupy Wall Street. And my question is uh, the relationship with the Fed and the international or external bank. What is this relation? Uh, the Bloomberg uh, 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 question, when he uh, pushed the Fed to reveal this revelation was a kind of time bomb, we don't know what is the relationship between the Fed, which is an American federal bank, and the European or external. Can you declare? Okay, so I think what you're, I think if I get you right, you're talking about that there during the crisis, the Fed engaged in transactions with other foreign central banks, like the European Central Bank. They needed dollars. They didn't, they can't print dollars, so they gave euros to the Fed, and the Fed lent them dollars in return, right? Um, I think the Fed was reasonably transparent about that. It was announced, these agreements were made. I think there are a lot, there are, good policy questions about whether that was a good idea and why should the Federal Reserve be supplying dollars to the European Central Bank so they can keep their banking system afloat and stuff like that. But I don't think there's much secret about it. What Bloomberg's uh, Freedom of Information suit revealed was more the identities of individual banks, some American, some foreign, that went to the Fed's window, the traditional role of a central bank, the lender of last resort, and lent money. They, they were short of cash. The Fed judged them to be solvent. They needed cash. The Fed lent them money. We didn't realize at the time how many of those banks were foreign-owned. Because of the disclosures that have come out since, we now know. The law has been changed, and now, after two years, we get the list of everybody who borrowed money from them. The people at the Fed, some of them are uncomfortable with that because they're afraid that there's a stigma, and banks who need money won't borrow it, and the system will suffer as a result. But it was a judgment of Congress. This goes to the disclosure question that Mark made. You don't need a lot of GAO auditors running around asking a lot of questions. You pass a law and say, you shall disclose this information. And now we know a lot about it. And the press and academic researchers and Occupy Wall Street and Bert Ely and everybody else is free to do analysis. <laughs> Although I would argue there are occasions where it might be smarter to have GAO to do a, a limited analysis with appropriate you know, evaluation and reporting in lieu of doing Total disclosure. All right. So, I mean, it's not all or nothing here. Although I think Dodd-Frank did give GAO the ability, or maybe they had it all along to, no. to go into, not, okay, but they have it now to look at the emergency lending. lending right. Emergency right. lending. Right. Emergency right. lending. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's, uh, right here, sir. Uh, the, the gentleman in the middle. Hi, Vern McKinley, a financial sector consultant. I think generally the Fed is very uh, cautious and very careful about what they say publicly. But on this issue, I think they get very sloppy. And uh, a couple examples of that, um, Dick Fisher down in Dallas said the Fed is audited out the wazoo, which because of this exemption, that's wildly overstated. Uh, Chairman Yellen said that 
You know, if uh, Paul Volcker had uh, had this audit the Fed in place, he might not have gone after inflation like he did. So I wonder if you could just comment on your thoughts on the, how the Fed has presented themselves during this process. And a related point, should government agencies like the Fed, the FDIC, any other agency be allowed to lobby, uh, that, that's my word, against uh, oversight in this manner, or should there be some kind of limitation on that? So who wants to jump in on that first question of whether how the Fed has uh, made its case on this? I think there's been a lot of disinformation and misinformation about what the ground truth is. In other words, what, what is being done right now. There's a lot that's being done right now. Uh, at the same point in time, there is an exception. Uh, and what this legislation proposes to do is to eliminate that exception. By the way, it would also uh, not include safeguards that exist with regard to the authority that was achieved through Dodd-Frank, all right? Uh, and, and my personal view is the answer is, is that you ought to have some additional authority with appropriate safeguards. So, uh, you know, th they are subject to a number of audits, but not in, not in the areas that we're talking about right now. They're not. But if they're going to be subject, they ought to be limited, and there ought to be safeguards to try to prevent the kind of abuse that people are concerned about. I, I mean, I wasn't, I mean, to me, some of the hyperbole has just been, I mean, maybe I can't decide whether it takes the cake. I testified with Simon Johnson on it. And he characterized GA audit as the as the Spanish Inquisition. I suspect any actual victim of the Spanish Inquisition would have preferred the GAO audit. Um, <laughs> but you know, you also had Fisher in the same speech say that there's anti-Semitism behind the audit. So I think these kind of bizarre kind of claims, which come on, let's just talk about what it actually is. Um, you know, is it going to have to admit there are bizarre claims on both sides? There are bizarre claims on both sides, which again, that's you know why why we have this panel to be the least bizarre people maybe in the conversation, and not, <laughs> and not Richard Fisher here and or anybody else. Could have been more entertaining with those guys. It, it might have been if we could just re you know bring Wright Patman back from the. It would have been fun to have Richard Fisher on this panel. The uh, what about the second question? Uh, the agencies uh, lot you know lobbying on 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 their own behalf. Should they be prevented from doing so some way? Is that a is that a, so I'm not, I, I just, I have a little bit, I, it's hard to know. Look, they are creatures of Congress. Every agency has legislative affairs people who deal with Congress. They are probably lobbyists. But I don't think that the Congress of the United States is shocked that the legislative affairs person at the Federal Reserve comes and speaks the Fed's line. Unlike Mark, I'm not disturbed about the fact that the Fed chairman meets with the chair of the Economic, National Economic Council or the Treasury Secretary or the President or the Senate Banking Committee chairman or the Minority Chairman. I mean, this is the U.S. government, and in, 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 even if you have independent monetary policy, the, these agencies have to sometimes work together to speak for the United States at the IMF, at the Basel Committee, at the G20. So I'm not worried so much that they're being that the, if there's political pressure, this isn't where it's happening. And if the Fed is doing something really nasty to get its way in Congress, it's not coming from the guy who's ledge affairs. It may be from the, uh, uh, you know, the chairman of the board of the Dallas Fed who was a big contributor to somebody calling up people and, and lobbying them when that happened. And I think that raises interesting questions about Fed governance. But I don't think that having the agencies talk to Congress is anything wrong with that? I don't recall the details, but there are certain legal restrictions on what, yeah. on, 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 on what agencies are supposed to do in the lobbying category with Congress. Uh, and, you know, obviously one of the reasons that you end up having hearings is to be able to have people to do in the sunshine and on the record, what do you think about, you know, 
you know, various potential legislation that might end up impacting your agency. Yeah. And it's and it's a fine line. I mean, yeah. I think we'd all say it would be inappropriate for a, for a Fed board member to meet with a group of bankers and then strategize a list of whip count on votes on the banking committee. I think we'd say that's inappropriate. And, you know, unfortunately, we've actually seen other agencies do those sort of things. Uh, but I don't think it's, an, you know, the, the Fed should be able to express their views on these topics. They should be able to give information to the committees, and those are appropriate avenues. The gentleman here has had his hand up for a while. Hi, Paul Martin Foss with the Carl Menger Center and former monetary policy staffer for Ron Paul. Uh, two of the major objections to audit the Fed uh, have been the uh, language that allows GAO to make recommendations on monetary policy uh, and the fear that Congress would be able to immediately second-guess every monetary policy decision. Uh, in response to that, the first version of audit the Fed that passed the House as the Paul Grayson Amendment to what eventually became Dodd-Frank uh, had a six-month rolling window so that no monetary policy decision uh, that was less than six months old could be audited or subject to an audit. Uh, it also got rid of that boilerplate language about GAO's recommendations. That was language that was added by Ledge Council. We reached out to Chairman Bernanke, never got a comment from him on a, uh, several occasions. So I'd like to get the opinion of the uh, panelists, particularly uh, Mr. Wessel, um, but uh, all of you. Um, if those changes were to be made to the current language of Audit the Fed, would that overcome some of your objections? And should they also uh, overcome some of the Fed's uh, current objections to Audit the Fed? I don't know a lot about the specifics of the legislative language. As I understand the bill, the, the current bill, it repeals a whole set of exemptions, period. And so there's, there's not a lot of safeguards there's on There's a 90 day, so in the, in, in the bill, there is a 90 day after, after the audit. So there are reasons. Oh, 90 day, that's the first audit, yeah. right? But it doesn't say going forward. It said there shall be an audit and it shall be done. But look, here's the issue. I mean, it's kind of obvious what's, what, what the Fed's worried about. That if you've ever worked in a government agency that has been the subject of repeated GAO audits, you, it's a lot of work. They come in, they ask a lot of questions. So what the Fed imagines, I'm not saying they're right, I'm just saying what they imagine is there will be lots of times, every time they make a decision, maybe it'll be six months later, there'll be lots of people running around saying, why did you do this, why did you do this? And they think that that's not helpful, right? That's basically what this is about. So. I'm not prepared to endorse any particular legislation. As I said, I'm sympathetic to the Vince Reinhardt proposal because it seems to be aimed at arming Congress with more information to provide better oversight over the Fed. And if that's the goal, then the, the language of the bill ought to be tailored to meet that goal. If the goal is Ron Paul's book and the Fed, then I think uh, there will be, the, the Fed's going to be suspicious. And I would be too. Uh, in the yellow shirt. No, I, I will note, I, I've yet to meet anybody in the executive branch in any agency who welcomed a GAO audit. So, I mean, that, that's an issue that cuts across <laughs> agencies. There is an exception. Uh, uh, has somebody asked you to be No, honest? no, the exception, the exception was, was that GAO has something called a high-risk list. Yes. And when I was Comptroller General, we made a policy decision that we would put an asterisk by agencies or programs or activities that were on that list where Congress was part of the problem and Congress needed to be part of the solution. In other words, the problem could not be solved solely by the executive branch. And the first year that we did that, I got a call from the Postmaster General of the United States who thanked me for putting them on the high risk list, which was maybe the only time. But the, <laughs> reason, like the, asterisk. But the reason was because of the asterisks. Now, I'm sad to say I think GAO's gotten rid of those. And 
I think that's a mistake. The Fed would probably lobby pretty hard to get an asterisk saying that Congress is a big part of their problem. And I think, it, well, they're not on the high-risk list, but if, but if they were, there would be an asterisk. There. <laughs> Hi, Michael Kirsch. Um, my question pertains to something I think that David Vessel implicitly brought up, which is the difference between uh, amending the Fed, which is Congress's ability. The whole history of the Federal Reserve since 1913 is uh, creating legislative amendments. 1930s and 40s, something similar to Section 13.3, which now this new amendment to give the Fed a special power to lend, that was commonplace discussion throughout the 1930s and 40s. So my question really is, should the discussion be by Congress, how should we be amending the Fed to meet the current crisis? Are there new powers that should be given, like Section 13.3? And is the, is the current discussion about just having more detailed information about specific powers, uh, a misplaced question. Should the focus be on amending the Fed, and do you as a panel see anything that could be amended to improve the Fed's uh, economic role? So basically your question is, should we be thinking about how to redo the Federal Reserve Act rather than to be arguing about what, how constrained should the GAO be in its questioning, right? Well, I, I don't think that the Federal Reserve Act, as you point out, has evolved over the years. It's very different than the one we had in 1913. It's very different than the one we got during the New Deal. And Dodd-Frank made some changes in it. So I don't look at it as a finished product. And as I tried to say, if, if you pick one thing where I, I'm uneasy about, it's this, the role of the Federal Reserve Banks, their private sector boards of directors. I think it undermines the legitimacy of the Fed. And I think that there are questions of governance there that deserve attention. So I, that, if you were asking me where would I begin thinking about things, it would be there. I should note that Barney Frank's view about the audit the Fed thing is it's basically an assault on, on the dual mandate, that, that the people who are for audit the Fed are looking for a way to repeal the mandate that the Fed worry about both unemployment and uh, inflation. That must explain Bernie Sanders' my, support. My, my, well, I, my, personal, I, uh, my, personal view is, my personal view is that the dual mandate's not a problem, and it's probably a good thing. But that's a debatable proposition. Let me follow up something that David said. That um, So, I mean, I do think that there are a number. I, I would actually, I don't see the audit and structural changes as being mutually exclusive. Um, right. I've actually written and proposed on the regional question that we should create for the regional Fed banks a new class of directors for the boards that are appointed by the governors in the states in question so that some elected official somewhere has some say on who the board is. And to me, I think that gets around the concern of you know, the proposals that want to have all the regional presidents you know, appointed by the president. That, that's right. problematic to me. Uh, one of the big problems, I think, you know, I'm not optimistic that an audit would change this. I think it needs to be changed in other ways. Is I think there's too much groupthink at the Fed, uh, and I think some of that becomes regional. So, for instance, Section 10 requires you to have no more than two governors from the same district. We have violated that repeatedly. Uh, the, uh, we went as far as the claim that Peter Diamond was from Chicago because he once gave a lecture at Northwestern. I think we should um, do an entire second panel. You should all come back for it on all the form. Fed governance <laughs> questions because they're because they're really interesting right, and there's there's a whole yeah. I don't there's think these things are mutually exclusive. I think you need both, and I would agree you need governance reforms. I think there's so no it's it's a that. it's a really interesting question, but probably for a, for a whole other panel, uh, sir, right here. Um, Pat Spann, just myself. The uh, I wonder when I see the talk about the Fed. There's always this thing about 
doing away with the Fed and returning to gold standard. I wonder if it's possible you guys could briefly, so a non-economist like myself could understand what our country economy would look like if we return to the gold standard. Anybody want to take a stab at what, <laughs> what the U.S. with the gold standard in 2015 would, uh, would be like? I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. I think it is worth parsing out. There are a variety of different gold standards. And what we had, uh, interwar years presented a gold exchange standard. Didn't work like the classical gold standard. Uh, maybe this is a great topic for GEO actually to do a lit review on, since maybe it would be outside of the audit restrictions. But I also think it's, you know, be, I don't know what the alternatives are going to look like. You know, to me, I don't think an audit is going to drive that. Uh, I have a hard time seeing. I understand and appreciate that if you, some of the parties behind the audit want to end the Fed, I think that puts a lot more, I think it's assuming there's a lot more power in GEO and an audit than I actually believe there is. So to me, that's why I don't see this as mutually exclusive. I see the audit is relatively minor, and we need to go on to, uh, to debate about a much broader set of issues. We tried the gold standard. It didn't work very well. We shouldn't go back to it. It certainly scares the Fed when the audit the Fed discussion quickly turns into a uh, what would a gold standard. Uh, yeah, I, I don't see how practically you could go back to a gold standard now. I mean, yeah. Do we have uh, any more questions uh, right here? Hi, I'm Nick Master, and I'm a PhD student at George Washington University in public policy. Uh, my question actually pertains to the relevance of asking GAO to do this investigation, this audit, what have you. Um, in our country's history, we've had at least one example where a president, and this is assuming that it's not Congress asking for this audit, as in this case it is, um, but if the executive branch, particularly the president, were to ask for this review of the Federal Reserve and whatnot and its governance, could we not have perhaps even think tanks be consulted like we did in 1933, and I'm sorry, in 37, um, where you had two think tanks, uh, chiefly Brookings and Rand Corporation, to give two different uh, perspectives on how to reorganize the White House and those types of executives that then went to Congress? First, the GAO doesn't work for the president. The GAO works for the Congress. Uh, uh, it does have the discretion, the Comptroller General does have the discretion to do work at his or her own discretion. Uh, and when I was there, we got it worked to where we had 10 to 15% discretion uh, to do things, and that typically were things based on the strategic plan that where we weren't going to get requests because they were longer range, maybe they were a little bit more controversial, but we felt that it was important for the nation to do. I think it's important for you to understand is whether the Congress asked for the work to be done or whether it's done on the Comptroller General's own initiative, that it's very, very common for the GAO to reach out to other think tanks. It's very, very common. It's kind of standard practice to reach out to, as part of the literature uh, search and the environmental scan and to, and to take a range of views, a broad spectrum of views. Um, and so that's, they're not exclusive, okay? I mean, that, that's normal for GAO but to do. It's a good question. It's actually one that I've thought about. So one of the things that Mark said is we don't really know enough about how, what the Fed did before the crisis, during the crisis. And so there was this attempt 
the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, which, in my judgment, they got a, they got a lot of interesting information. I mean, people, reporters are still getting stories about the documents get, but the, the, the committee didn't work very well together. It wasn't, uh, it got a little partisan, might have been too soon. Uh, so that was kind of unsatisfying. There, was, there have been bills in Congress to create committees to study the Fed. Um, they don't appear to be aimed at the most uh, impartial discussion. One of them said, for instance, it should be about Fed governance and should be appointed by members of Congress, and the Federal Reserve chairman should get to pick one person, but that person would have to be a president of a regional Fed bank, which does <laughs> suggest maybe that they didn't want the most. Um, so uh, I looked into this a little. In the late 50s, there was, a there was a proposal in Congress to create a commission on money and credit. Eisenhower proposed it. And it was you know, to, to prove that things never change. The House and Senate could never agree on the same bill, so it never passed. And there was a, a committee of you know blue chip uh, Fortune 500 businessmen and labor leaders, the Committee on Economic Development, that actually formed the commission. And they they hired a staff and they did reports and they did a report. And when I came to Brookings, I thought, well, maybe we should do that. Like maybe we can convene some commission. And uh, there's a wise old economist named Bob Alaber, an economic historian who, uh, among other things, has uh, uh, done the subsequent edition of Charlie Kindleberger's classic book on manias and depression. And it turns out he was on the staff of this commission. And 10 years after it reported, he wrote a little academic piece on what impact they had. And the answer was they made a huge splash when the report came out, and they had no impact. At which point I decided to try something else. <laughs> but I think, I, think the, I, I think you're stepping on something that's really important, and it goes to no, what no, Mark no. said. Is, there is this kind of, you're, gosh, these guys have done incredible things, right? They seem to be running the world. Uh, they, 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 have, they were the only uh, actor in the early days of the crisis who could do anything. Hank Paulson had to rely on the Fed to do stuff. And, and, and so somehow there's this, could, could someone please check this out and make sure it really worked as designed and we didn't get a whole lot of unintended consequences. And I yeah. think that, somehow satisfying that would be a real step forward. I just don't think that audit the Fed is going to provide that kind of... And, and let me say, I, mean, I, I do think you know, having some sort of commission would be of value. What I will echo and agree with David here is I think it's got to be structured correctly. I mean, to me, the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission <laughs> was structured to be partisan from the start. So one thing you should learn is if you stack a commission with a bunch of politicians, it's probably going to be political. So, uh, you know, you, you know and, and again, that, that was the case. So I do think having something that goes back, could look back and say, what was the role in the crisis? Did, you know, the Fed contribute to the housing bubble or not? What was the reaction? I think all that would be very valuable. You know, and, I, and do I think, you know, you could have it broaden and say, do we need to make changes to the Fed? Do we need the Fed? You know, what's, what's an objective uh, opinion of the gold standard? I read the historical evidence a little differently. But again, what does the evidence say? Get the politicians out of the room and leave it to, you know. This is one of the things where I would actually agree that maybe having some experts who aren't political uh, would get us there a little better uh, than the way we've done this in the past. One, one of the practical challenges is, you know, how do you get some Congress to act, Okay. Uh, and one of the things that we did when I was Comptroller General at GAO is we actually did some work to try to analyze uh, historical commissions and what were some of the common denominators between the ones that actually had an impact and ones that didn't have an impact. Uh, and the GAO has a challenge here. I mean, most of the recommendations the GAO makes are to the executive branch rather than to the Congress. And 85% of them get adopted within... Uh, within three to five years with great financial and non-financial benefits. 
But the example I gave before with regard to duplicative, redundant, overlapping programs, all right, they've made, they've issued these reports, but there's no requirement for Congress to do anything. That's why one of the things that I think you have to do is not only who does it, all right, but it's the process that is used once the report is issued. And my view is on things that are really important that involve tough choices, you need to think about mandatory hearings, you need to think about mandatory congressional action within a stated period of time, and maybe some type of a higher bar for amendments, depending upon what the nature of the, uh, of, uh, of the legislation might be. Because just because you get a report doesn't mean anything's going to be done with it. All right? And David, I would, I would I, be all for setting up a uh, select committee on considering GAO <laughs> recommendations. <laughs> I think we've run out of time here for today, but I would like to thank our panelists uh, for doing this. Thank you, Josh. This is a tremendously interesting pretty clear that uh, the Fed's going to stay a subject of keen interest for, for some time, so we'll probably have plenty of opportunity to debate this in the future as well. Thank you, Josh. Uh, uh, I don't know about you, but I thought that was just the most wonderful discussion of this issue that, that uh, I've heard. Uh, I can't help uh, resist injecting a historical note. You know, we think about this debate as being something that was uh, launched by Ron Paul, but the present law goes back to 1978, before which the GAO wasn't allowed to uh, audit the Fed at all. And when the present law was being debated with the exemptions that are now a subject of debate, the uh, controller general of the GAO, or rather uh, the deputy controller general, or assistant controller general, pardon me for not remembering which, <laughs> argued at the time that the exemptions were too strict and that they should be loosened to allow the GAO to engage in the kind of auditing that some of our discussants have argued would be uh, productive today. So this isn't just a, a Ron Paul thing. It's an issue that's been around, but just hasn't had any attention before. Anyway, uh, uh, I'd like to now invite everyone to lunch on the second floor. You can get there either by the elevator or by going up the spiral stairs in the foyer. You'll find bathrooms upstairs to your right on your way to the dining room. Uh, but before we all uh, march up there, uh, I'd like to first of all thank our audience for being with us today. And I'd like to suggest that we together offer our thanks once again to all of the participants for their very insightful discussion.